You found the Love Flight Podcast. I'm Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach, and I've been helping Nervous Flyers since 1997. So in this podcast, you are going to find aviation experts, psychologists, coaches, enthusiasts, and people normal, just like you, who have overcome their fears. Welcome. So uh, this week, we welcome John Ty to our podcast. Welcome, John. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. So this episode is a proper geek out because John uh, used to fly the Concorde. Uh, has a book coming out as well. So this is uh, Steal Your Thunder. But for those who are interested in that amazing aircraft or just love aviation you're gonna love this one so john welcome and uh so john, tell us a little bit about so how you got into aviation and anything like i am um, i grew up as a young man living just south of heathrow and that was way back in the early 60s when heathrow had six runways i'm struggling to get a third runway now and uh, i they sit in my bedroom runways. i never knew that yeah heathrow had six runways the uh obviously we got the two east-west runways that we still have now. And then we had two cross runways that ran uh, northeast to southwest and two other cross runways that ran northwest to southeast. And I used to sit in my bedroom window as a five-year-old watching aircraft land on runway 33 left at Heathrow. <laughs> and my dad made me a little uh, airband radio so I could actually listen to the pilots. And that's how it all started for me. And in those days, Aeroplanes had lots of propellers and lots of fins and lots of black smoke coming out the back. And, um, that, you know, traveled all around the world to land at Heathrow, of course. So that's kind of what got me hooked. I joined uh, British Airways in the summer of 76. It was meant to be a summer holiday job before going to university. I got the job as the lowest clerical grade you can get in the airline, sticking labels on bits of paper. And 46 years later, I retired. Uh, I never went to university. I, uh, I met a few pilots in, uh, I, I, the, the first job was a clerical, as I said. And then I got a job a few weeks later, running around and the, um, the airport with uh, a van and a walkie talkie and a uniform. And I'm putting all the maps and books in the flight decks of all the airliners that he's throwing, including Concorde, which was in service by then. And uh, I got to meet airline pilots and flirt with stewardesses. And what 19-year-old wants to give that up to go to university? And when I met those pilots, I thought, you're just a regular guy. You're not Superman. I want to do that job. Mm. And so I applied to the College of Air Training at Hamble, where it was this, uh, back in those days, in uh, 1979. I got accepted. And uh, that year, later that year, they wrote to me in September of 79. I've still got the letter. And so we just, we, there's a downturn in the industry, and we suggest you pursue any plans you may have for an alternative career. So, like a typical 19, well, 20, 21 by then, I moaned and groaned and mumbled and grumbled. And my wife kicked me up the proverbial backside and bought my first flying lesson for me. So, I paid for all my own flying lessons. And six years later, got a commercial pilot's license 
And uh, my big break was with Dan Air. Dan Air offered. So, how was it? So you self-funded all the way through. I self-funded all the way through, and I never. This is this is why I encourage youngsters nowadays to chase their dreams, chase their ambitions. I never had a rich family. I mm -hmm. paid for it all myself. But uh, yes, it took seven years. I worked on the ground at BA throughout that period, and just saved up and did a little bit here and there. Um, once I became a flying instructor, a part-time flying instructor, the students were paying for the flying. And and that's what you did in those days. You had to get 700 hours to get your commercial pilot's license. So that is a very inspiring story. I mean, I don't know what how expensive it was then, but it's it's still mighty expensive now, isn't it? So maybe it's the same comparatively, you know? It was relative, uh, Paul. I seem to remember paying about £30 an hour for a lesson. Uh, back in the early 80s, uh, and now it's probably 230, but it's all relative. And you, I did a uh, probably a couple of lessons a month and that kind of thing. It was it was expensive, yeah, but I uh, I just did it over a long period of time and had that support and determination behind me. But before that, on the 21st of January 1976, a date etched in history, I found myself at Heathrow clinging to the chain link fence with thousands of other people watching the world's first commercial Concorde service take off with 100 passengers on board. To go to the edge of space at twice the speed of sound and take them to Bahrain for the very first time. If somebody there had bet me a million pounds that I would end up flying that very aeroplane, I would have laughed and, and not taken mm. the bet. Um, mm. Now, quite how I came to be at Heathrow, at 11.40 on a Wednesday morning instead of in double geography. I'm not sure, but we gloss over that bit. <laughs> so, oh, that's amazing. That is a great, that is a great little kind of uh, moment to think about, isn't it? That, that you were there for that one. So, so, so talk us through your journey into, yeah, so you, you did just seven years of pilot training and then you, then what happened? Yeah, then I I didn't have any um, commercially flying experience, of course, although I've been flying for seven years on small aeroplanes and instructing. And I couldn't stay in British Airways as a pilot. So I applied to all the airlines, and it was Dan Air that gave me my first break. Mm. Uh, they offered me a job straight onto the Boeing 727, which was a tremendous privilege and opportunity. And I did two years with Dan. They were a most fantastic company to work for small, friendly, uh, so flexible. And um, in fact, the day that I was due to have our first baby, or my wife was, uh, we were due to go what we call base training in Shannon, where we take an empty aeroplane and do circuits and bumps. And Dana said, oh, goodness me, Dana, you stay at home, don't miss the birth. And obviously, we want you to be able to concentrate 100%. So I stayed at home until the baby had arrived. Um, Jenny was born on the 17th of November, 87. And then they took a 727 out of service just for me and, and another chap, actually, who'd had some problems in his initial training. And we went to Shannon and we did the circuits. And then I was up and running and flying the 727 around Europe for the next two years. I mean, just thinking about it, that, that's so progressive, isn't it? You know, that in those days, you know, we talk about a lot of organizations now where they have to think about the well-being of staff and, and you know, how to keep engaged and stuff. I mean, they must have just bought your loyalty many times over by just doing that gesture. Not not a cheap gesture either, you know? I think that's amazing. 
Absolutely. It would have cost them money. And um, so during that two years, of course, I had thoughts about would I stay at Dan Air forever or would I go and apply back to try and go back to British Airways? And my loyalty was very, very strong. And I know other people who jumped and ran earlier than me. And you had a thing called a bond in place such that if you, the agreement was a contract that, that if you left uh, the company within two or three years or whatever the agreement was, you'd pay back your training costs. And um, so I did. Uh, some people left and, and said, well, come and whistle for it. But uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, so they were so fantastic to me. Yeah. They missed some great opportunities. And I've written about um, uh, a, a story where I flew to Dallas with our boss uh, and in down here, the chief pilot on the 727 fleet to pick up a Boeing 727 that Dan Air had just bought from Braniff in Dallas. And um, I was very privileged to get this opportunity to go as the first officer on this trip. So we flew out in business class on a, a DC-10 with uh, British Airways. And uh, that was when I realized that maybe I should consider going back to BA. But we had a great time in Dallas. We went to visit South Fork, the, you know, the ranch from J.R. Ewing days. And we picked up the 727 and we flew it up to Gander, where we stopped a, a night or two before making the transatlantic crossing. Mm. So this was, I'd never been further than Tenerife before now. And here we are, we're flying this airplane across the Atlantic uh, to bring it back home to, to the UK. And that was a real adventure, a real adventure. And I've written much about that. And a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. So, so you, how long before you came back? So you, yeah. So I did two years in Dan, and then I did apply to come back to British Airways, and uh, so I came back to them in 1989, uh, September 89, and um, I was very fortunate to be offered a job straight on to Boeing 747 to the jumbo jet. And oh, the original wow. one, the classic one with the spiral staircase. Oh, I remember it, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it was a fantastic airplane. And I was based at Gatwick, and I spent the next nine years of my life flying the 747. We were called the Beach Fleet. All we did was fly to the Caribbean and latterly the Seychelles and Mauritius. And that's all we did. It was fantastic, absolutely. So do you have like then, the talent? Just before then. Yep, absolutely. And always wanted to figure out if I could claim tax relief on the sun cream and sunglasses. And um, <laughs> But up until then, I'd been paying to go on holiday to Barbados, which is our favorite destination, and paying to have flying lessons. And here I was being paid to fly a 747 to Barbados. And, and I was staying in a top class hotel and being paid for it. I couldn't believe this job I'd now got. Yeah, no, that is amazing. So, uh, and I, I love the job. I particularly love that one. And a lot of the pilots used to say they they really enjoyed that because uh, I worked at Virgin and they had one of those and uh, they had a, a few of the sort of like slightly newer ones as well. But a lot of the pilots really preferred that one because they said you felt yeah. like you were flying it. So I don't know if that was true for you. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you really did. It was you, you were really flying a proper airplane. Of course, we had autopilots and things like that. Um, but you were certainly flying a, a proper airplane. And I remember the uh, Virgin 747, of course, because before Virgin even went into operation, before they even had that airplane, one of my ground jobs at BA, I'd moved on from putting all the maps and books in the cockpits, was doing aircraft performance, the mm -hmm. calculating the, the takeoff and landing 
weights and speeds and things like that for the pilots. And uh, we did uh, ad hoc uh, work and we were doing the performance data for that very first Boeing 747 uh, the Virgin had. And uh, so he yeah, was doing work to help get that into the air. Oh, that's a nice little thing, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. And when you think back to this, because we'll, we'll sort of move forward in your career, but just sort of as a general point, you think back, you were sort of flying around sort of the, the 80s and stuff. Did, in terms of the safety, did you did it ever occur to you that it might be unsafe in any way? None whatsoever, no. Uh, all big airlines have tremendous safety procedures in place, not just the maintenance to physically look after the aeroplane. Mm. Um, but even back in those days, and in fact, I'm, I was very impressed with Dan Air, my two years there. They were leading the way in what we called CRM, Crew Resource Management, latterly renamed as Cockpit Resource Management. Dan Air, way back in the 60s and 70s, had had a series of accidents. So they were out there looking to, to, to stop this trend, what was causing this. And they were one of the first to be looking at human factors. And there was a legendary, um, Dr. Roger Green uh, was behind the development of CRM training in aviation. And for example, Dan Air even to the extent had a, in the simulator when we were doing our training and our checks, which we did every six months, they'd have a little camera mounted in front of the pilots with a very wide lens. So part of the debrief afterwards was looking at the way the pilots had communicated was there an ambiguity? And they could even look at their body language uh, uh, when they were assessing what they'd been doing in the simulator. So way back in the in the eighties, um, we were all over the human side of aviation safety because aeroplanes, of course, were getting much more reliable by then. Um, and we've always had this no blame culture. All mm. big airlines have it, so that if I was flying and and I had a a, a near incident or I made a mistake, I'd be able to put my hand up and say, goodness me, this nearly happened to me. Yeah. And that would get back through a reporting system. And if they saw trends, they'd say, thanks very much, John, and we'll all look at that. And it goes to a committee. What caused you to nearly have this incident? Yes. So they'd be all over that looking for trends. And if they saw trends developing, then they'd build that into the next training program that gets changed every six months. And that's how they kept on top of it. And this has been going on way back in the, since way back in the 80s. And the, the other thing I must mention, Paul, is that I think it was about 1992, 1991, somewhere around there, the airline industry introduced a thing called TCAS, which is Traffic Collision Awareness System, I think, TCAS. And it was where aeroplanes actually talk to one another. Mm. So up until then, we've been very reliant on air traffic controllers and how you know and their sophisticated radar systems, making sure we didn't bump into one another in in the sky. Because there had been very occasional mid-air collisions. So mm. come nineteen ninety two, these became a thing of the past. Because if two aeroplanes were flying towards one another or one was climbing and another one was flying level above it, they would actually talk to one another and give instructions to the to one of the aeroplanes to climb or to descend or to level off. It was an incredible step forward in aviation. Mm. And it was something that wasn't, uh, that was modified onto Concorde. So if you ever look at a Concorde in a museum or come to Brooklyn's and fly the Concorde simulator, 
you'll see we've got two vertical speed indicators, two VSIs. There was the original one, which was a strip instrument, but in 1992, they put, had to put in a modern LCD display so mm. that you could see other aircraft that were around us, uh, even though there wasn't that was unlikely to be other airplanes around us in Concord at the edge of space, but had coming in and out of the airport. So TCAS was a fantastic step forward. Yeah, I, I love that. And that's, and that's a really good link as well, because a lot, I couldn't remember when it came in. I knew it. I know a lot of our pilots when they talk about the the fear of flying backups. That's one of the things which massively reassures people of thinking that every aircraft has got that. And uh, you know, I was always thinking, when did that? Because it's I've always just known it to be around. You know, didn't really think about it arriving. So when you think about the the, the Concorde, for example, because I guess we're going to move into that. I find that astounding that what was they they were able to create way back then, you know, and you think about when we look at what we consider to be technological advances now, but back then to create something that could fly at that speed, carry passengers, I mean, it's just it's astounding, isn't it? It's absolutely mind-boggling, Paul, yeah. So we've just had uh, the last few months significant anniversaries, the 20th anniversaries of the last Concorde mm. flights, that day when three landed back at Heathrow, that was the 24th of October, 2003, so just over 20 years ago. And that iconic picture that everybody can can, force, can see, the, the Concorde turning over the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol yeah. just before making its final touchdown. That was the 26th of November, 2003, just over 20 years ago. There isn't a child on earth who's ever seen Concorde flying. And Concorde first flew way back on the 2nd of March, 1969. We've got a big event at Brooklyn's coming up for the 55th anniversary of that first flight. We'd only just got colour television, and that was on BBC too. It was remarkable. And a few months later, the Americans put a man on the moon for the very first time. And there's even people at NASA who've said that they believe that what we achieved with, what we did with Concorde was a greater technical achievement than their moon landings. It was absolutely remarkable. The designers, the developers, they didn't have computers like we take for granted nowadays. It was all done on drawing boards. and uh, It was an incredible uh, technical achievement. Yeah, I find it stunning. I was, I went to um, Duxford recently and I saw this one parked in there. Just thought, oh, wow, look at that. And uh, I never had the privilege of flying, so I kind of gutted. And uh, so I, there's so many things I want to ask you about it. Could get a little bit geeky now. So, uh, well, tell us how it, you then went into so the seven four seven and then into the Concorde. How, how did that all happen? Yeah, well, I've always once I'm back in BA, I always had a fascination for Concorde, and um, I put my name down every year to to join the Concorde fleet. And it was nine years later before my name came up. I was the next on the list. And uh, I got the opportunity to join a Concorde course. They only ran once a year. So mm. it was a very rare privilege to become uh, a Concorde pilot. There were only ever 134 of us in the whole 27 years that the aircraft was in service with British Airways. Only 134 pilots got to fly Concorde. Last wow. time I looked, there'd been over 650 astronauts in space. So yeah. it really was a great privilege. We had flight engineers, of course, as well. There were only ever 57 flight engineers. In British Airways, who flew Concorde. 
It was the toughest training course in aviation, without doubt. It uh, took six months, and that was six weeks in a classroom doing ground school, and then uh, 19 simulator details. So all, again, twice as many simulator details as a conventional conversion course. And then we did our base training. We took the aircraft uh, off somewhere quiet and needed a long runway and good weather to do circuits and bumps, practice the landings. And this was February 1999 by the time I'm doing my base training. Mm. And we went to Shannon, as usual. And the weather was okay. We got a couple of circuits in, but then the weather deteriorated. And we spent some, uh, the next day sitting around. The weather forecast wasn't good. So the instructors literally got a map of Europe out to try and find a, a runway somewhere that was long enough where we weren't going to be too much of a nuisance for noise. And, and uh, there wasn't too much commercial traffic. And we went to Seville. And Concord had never been to Seville before. So within yeah. minutes of arriving there, thousands of people came out to watch us. And we were there for three or four days doing our circuits. And I was the last one to fly. And I think it was a Thursday afternoon just before sunset. And I launched off on my very first ever Concord takeoff. It was the most phenomenal experience a pilot could ever have. And it was also in at the deep end for the high profile role that I was now undertaking. Mm -hmm. When we landed and parked up and shut down, and, and I was sitting there so excited that adrenaline was flowing. And Mike Bannister, our chief pilot, walked into the flight deck with a TV crew. And I was interviewed live on Spanish television about what it was like to fly Concorde for the first time. No pressure then. And no pressure. But then we, by that stage, we're now qualified Concorde pilots. So the Civil Aviation Authority stamped Concorde on the back of your license, along with the list of any other airliner that you've been trained to fly. We only fly one type at a time, of course. Mm. But we haven't, all we've done is really flown the airplane in circuits around Seville at 2,000 feet, at 250 knots. So then we have to go on what we call route training, where we fly the airplane on the routes at twice the speed of sound on the edge of space in the commercial environment with up to 100 passengers. And so we spent the next couple of months flying backwards and forwards to New York uh, with senior experienced training captains just to develop those skills of operating the airline in the commercial world. Uh, and it was absolutely fantastic. The best job in the world. So how does it compare to flying other aircraft types. I mean, the 747 is pretty huge as it is. So then to go on to that, which was basically a rocket, uh, what was that like? A very good description. In fact, we often used to call it the rocket. People used to say, what, what fleet do you want? You're on the rocket. And um, it was. The, the takeoff is absolutely phenomenal because on a conventional aeroplane, even back in those days, and certainly now, we on takeoff, we only use the minimum power necessary. We calculate carefully the weight of the aeroplane. We go into the, the, these various tables and charts. It's all computerized nowadays. And work out the minimum power we need to get that airliner airborne. We're thinking about engine wear. We're thinking about noise. We're thinking about emissions and the environment. So if you watch a modern Airbus or a Boeing 787 Dreamliner coming out of Heathrow, it's not going up like a rocket. It's climbing out very gently and very yes. quietly. And it's only using a fraction of its power. Uh, that's all it needs to climb safely away. Now, Concorde was always full power 
with reheat or afterburners, regardless of the weight of the aeroplane. So the lighter it went was, the faster it went. So that very first takeoff in Seville was like nothing on us. As you just said, it was more like a rocket. And the idea was to take off, pull the nose up to a very high altitude, and then level off at 2,000 feet. It took seconds. Mm. And just before my first takeoff, the training captain sitting next to me said, John, the training captains have run a book on the greatest altitude reached by a novice Concorde pilot and his attempt to stop at 2,000 feet. And the record stands at 7,200. <laughs> so no pressure. <laughs> um, so that was uh, um, that was quite incredible. And then we flew around the circuit and came back. And how did you do? I think I did pretty good. I, was, I don't remember doing anything dra drastic. I think we stopped pretty close to 2,000 feet, to be honest with you. And, but it was over, over because I'd been prepared for it. And we've been practicing it over and over again in the simulator. And uh, But that still can't, it's a good simulator, but it, you still can't prepare you for the noise and the smell. You get the kerosene, wisp of kerosene coming through the flight deck uh, air conditioning system. And the bouncing, the flight deck bounces. You're sitting 37 feet in front of the nose wheel. So the tiniest little bump in the runway gets amplified and you bounce up and down during that takeoff roll. And the acceleration is absolutely phenomenal. You're literally pushed into the back of your seat. It's a precision exercise. All three of you start your stopwatches simultaneously and it's three, two, one, now. And you fire all the throttles. You push the throttle levers fully forward vigorously. You wouldn't do that on a modern airplane. You feed the power in gently. And then you'll literally push back and you see. And then there's various calls that are made as uh, power set, 100 knots, V1, rotate. And I threw a couple of extras in there on my very first, uh, including an expletive, as I'll leave you to imagine. It was unbelievable. Yep. Uh, it's like every kid's dream, isn't it, to do that quite It really is, yes. It really was. It was um, a, a, a privilege is a word I use quite a lot. I couldn't believe yeah. it. I remember that word. I was working at the airport. We we all used to stop working. I think it was at ten thirty or something. There was those takeoff that used to go out, and uh, and also, as I lived near Austerley, I was able to I had to cycle I cycled into work, and the, they used to pull the cold call across. There's a you know you had then Heathrow Airport. You could drive across a part of it, and then you had those gates. And I remember they used yeah. to pull it across, and we'd always look at it just thinking, wow. Didn't ever think that it would stop flying. You just sort of took it for granted, really, you know. It, absolutely. I've hardly got any pictures of my time because we didn't have smartphones, so we weren't snapping everything. And it was a job I was I was going to do to get to ever, to forever. But to pick up on your departure time there, we'd, yes, you're right. We'd leave Heathrow at 10.30 in the morning. We'd fly at twice the speed of sound at 1,350 miles an hour faster than a rifle bullet across the ocean. And we would land in New York at 9.30 in the morning, an hour before we've left. That, of course, is why Concord pilots always look so young. They gain an hour every time they go to work. How many times do you use that, Jim? Yeah, I normally get a laugh for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I like that one. Yeah. And, of course, in the, in the spring and the autumn, uh, we, the evening flight would leave Heathrow at seven o'clock in the evening. And so it was dark. Yeah, and um, we'd take off in the dark, the afterburners and the re reheats looking most spectacular from the back of the aeroplane. Yeah, I bet. 
And again, we're now flying faster than the Earth is rotating. So the sun would come up again. We would see the sunrise in the west and arrive in New York at six o'clock in the evening in time for the second sunset of the day. Absolutely remarkable. On an no, just, I kind of get my head around that. No, it's an incredible concept. And another route, fantastic uh, route that was very popular uh, was Barbados. We do it six months of the year. Um, and uh, bear in mind what a conventional subsonic airplane, even now it takes eight and a half hours to get to Barbados. Mm. You get there, queue at immigration, and then you might get to your hotel in time for a, a, a cocktail to watch the sunset. So on Concord, we do it every Saturday. We leave Heathrow at 9.30 in the morning. And it would take about three and a half hours to get to Barbados. And given the time change, we'd land in Barbados at 8.30 in the morning. And it uh, was absolutely phenomenal. And the flight only went once a week, so we'd stay for a whole week. Oh, you've known suffering, haven't you, honestly? (laughs) (laughs) I just felt so privileged. It was absolutely fantastic. I love all that. I, I want to ask you so much. Can I ask you some geeky ones? So, so in terms of jet lag, then, how did that work for you? Did you get any? No, you didn't. Um, a, because you uh, you went in the air long enough to get dehydrated, which is always associated with jet lag. Um, the flights were always short. And they didn't realize this when they designed and built the airplane. But they looked into why businessmen and women were always reporting how they never felt tired. They never felt jet lagged. And because you were flying, I think they scientifically proved that because you were flying faster than the earth is rotating, it has a very clever effect on your body and resets your body clock much quicker than if you'd been flogging across the Atlantic on a, a subsonic airplane. So there was no jet lag for pilots, crew, cabin crew, or passengers. It was, it was a non-event. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, uh, some more geeky questions. So I, I heard that when you were flying, that the aircraft stretched. Is that true? It's very true. Yeah. So the temperature outside the airplane at sixty thousand feet, somewhere between minus sixty and minus seventy degrees centigrade. Once we're flying through the sound barrier, we're forcing the air apart. The air molecules aren't getting any advance notice of our arrival, so we're forcing the air apart. We're compressing the air and we're getting a lot of friction flying through the air at that speed. So the temperature on the nose of the airplane would get up to its maximum of 127 degrees centigrade, hotter than boiling water. So during the course of a supersonic flight, the airplane would grow up to eight inches in flight. You didn't get any extra leg room during the course of the flight. They were even clever enough to put the cabin floor on rollers so that the airplane expanded around the cabin. The place the expansion was most evident was in the flight deck. So if you went into the Concorde flight deck, and everybody was welcome to in those days, of course, mm. see the flight engineer's panel. And in subsonic flights on the ground, it sat at right angles and was up against a bulkhead behind the flight engineer's panel. At just a small gap between the panel and the bulkhead. And in supersonic flight, when the aeroplane had grown, you could get your fist in that, in that gap. Absolutely remarkable. And if you go and see Concorde in the museums around the UK or indeed around the world, on the very last flight, one of the flight engineers or one of the pilots put their uniform hat in that gap in supersonic flight, knowing that as the airplane cooled down for the very last time, it will be crushed and in there forever. 
That is cool. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> so, how many were made in total? There were twenty Concords made. Uh, there's Britain and France built the aeroplane together. Right? There were various um, manufacturing places, including Brooklands in Weybridge in Surrey, where more the more of a, every Concorde was built. Over thirty percent of every Concorde was built in Weybridge. Then they were all the pieces were taken to Toulouse and Filton to be assembled. So there were ten assembled in the UK at Filton and ten assembled at Toulouse in France. So twenty altogether. The first six um, did not go into commercial service. They were used for testing and development. And each airline had seven Concords, so fourteen in total in commercial service from 1976 until 2003. 27 years in service. Wow. And, and so up of this, the ones that you had, would you say that they all had their own like little quirks of personality when you got in? Because a lot of pilots say that every aircraft feels slightly different. Uh, personally, I never was really aware of that. People did say that uh, one of them, Alpha Foxtrot, which is the last one to fly, had a little um, uh, an animal... Uh, um, What's the word? Uh, there's a peculiar trait that as it went supersonic, there would be a little um, false warning on one of the instruments or something because the nose cone wasn't the original one. Apparently, they bashed the nose cone on a hangar door or something and had to swap it. So there was very there was something tiny that wasn't quite in alignment or something like that. And the, the, the real experienced pilots thought they could notice that. But no, to me, they were all the same. They All the instruments, the layout, they all handle the same as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So what for you then was the, the best bit about flying Concorde? Um, I think it was the best job in the world. It was just for a pilot. Uh, it was all the best bits of short haul and long haul rolled into one. If you're a short haul pilot, you've got to get up very early in the morning. You charge around Europe and you get back where you started from. So you're in your own, own bed every night. For long haul, you're charging around the world. You get dehydrated many nights out of bed, but you get to see the world. Concorde, you had the best bits of both. So no early starts, no nights out of bed. You you did fly in the dark, of course, but you never flew through the night. And um, no jet lag, no tiredness. And I guess, if I'm really honest, it was a great feeling knowing you were doing something very, very special. It was absolutely uh, iconic. I loved Fly physically flying the aeroplane, and I love meeting some wonderful people. You know, we meet, meet the passengers. Eighty percent of them were business travellers. Ten percent were the rich and famous, and and you know, we get to meet them. It was just good fun. And also, we were such a small group. You know, I've just retired from a big airline in the UK, and um, you were a number even right to the end of my career. I'd go into the briefing room to meet my crew, uh, cabin crew, and possibly with two other pilots. And it's quite likely I've never seen any of them before in my life, which is amazing. Whereas on Concord, we were such a small family. Mm. It was a day out with your mates every time you went to work. It was just so special, the whole thing. Oh, that does sound brilliant. So talking to people that you met, who was your, who was your most regular passenger? And I'm thinking you'll say the same person that we've had on the podcast. And uh, who is the most interesting person you met or the the funniest or quirkiest or weird, I don't mind. Yeah, well, we've had lots of, uh, again, 80% of the passengers were business travellers. So you'd, you'd see them quite 
regularly and uh, there was um so david frost was one of one of the most regular ones and um yeah i mean paul mccartney was a regular traveler and it was always great fun with the crew and was known to bring his flight deck his guitar into the flight deck oh really and, uh, i've got a little little tale i've written about in my book i won't go into great, great detail now but in bringing the guitar in and doing it doing a duet with the captain and mick janker used to get in and to sit down the back with a bottle of water and read his book and uh um, Elton John was the the first uh, celebrity I met on one of my very early flights, and they were all really nice people. They were away from the media, and, and you know, very often they, they knew the crew. The crew were regulars, cabin crew were regulars on there. So it was just a not always a party, of course, but it was just a familiar, nice environment. It was lovely. It does sound ideal, uh, and also going to work and knowing who you're going to be working with, uh, you just know what your day is going to be like. And- that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It really was. So it's, uh, again, the word privilege comes out of my mouth far too often. It, it was um, absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. 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 I and mean, it was a, you know, a schoolboy who started off, I started off in life with nothing. Literally, I was given up for, uh, by my parents at birth and uh, spent my first few months in, a, in an orphanage, in a children's home. And then I was adopted. You know, so I had a, you know, not the most great start in life for the first few months. And um, and I never had a rich family. I've always had a, a medical issue with my legs, which has slowly got worse over the years. But um, you know, I've overcome quite a lot, and that's why I say. And I had the you know the pinnacle of my career, obviously, was flying Concorde. And I spend my time now talking to the air cadets and the young young people out there and trying to inspire them mm-hmm. that if they've got a dream, got an ambition, then go for it, do your best, and try and try and achieve that. I was talking to a school friend, uh, sorry, a friend of mine who was a former school teacher. And she said, well, just be careful, John. We try and make children understand that those ambitions must be realistic. And she knew about the problems I'd always had with my legs. And she said, for example, you could have never been a ballet ballet dancer. So um, as long as those those ambitions are realistic, then go for it, you know. Yeah. Despite your, despite your start in life. And, and was that a big disappointment for you, not being able to go into ballet? <laughs> well, I, I haven't given up yet. And still, you know, I might still want to give it a go. But no, I, I think I've got over still that one. Yeah. 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 I think I've crossed that one off the list. Yeah, I, you know, I, don't, I don't see you in a tutu and that, and I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on from that one. <laughs> so, so maybe go to a more sort of somber note then, like, in terms of the safety, when you were flying that aircraft, did you ever feel unsafe in any way? None whatsoever, Paul. This this was the most tested aeroplane ever. From that first flight in 1969, it didn't go into commercial service for another seven years, January 76. So for that seven years, we spent testing, testing, testing. It was the most tested aeroplane ever. It had 27 years in commercial service. We all know there was a tragic accident in France on the 25th of July, 2000. I flew Concorde the day before, the night before I flew in from New York. I'll never forget where I was when I heard news of that dreadful accident. It was a freak chain of events, and uh, there's much been, been much written about that accident, so I won't go into great detail about it. And then once the there was enough known about the cause of the accident because British Airways carried on flying. I flew two days after the accident. 
I had no no fear whatsoever. I just didn't really, it didn't wor- didn't worry you. You knew no, none whatsoever. This airplane by then had been in service for twenty four years, and uh, this was a freak accident. And by, by the fifteenth of August, the authorities and the investigation people knew enough about the chain of events. There's always a chain of events behind an accident, and the investigation got far enough to realise that this chain of events. Theoretically, statistically, could happen again. So they grounded the aeroplane on the 15th of August 2000. I was on the flight that day. We were just pushing back from the gate, starting the engines, and we oh, were recalled. Yeah, we were recalled to the gate. So the Civil Aviation Authority had phoned British Airways at 10 o'clock and said, we're giving you 24 hours notice that we're going to be grounding Concorde and you've got to make some modifications. BA convened an urgent board meeting. And they decided that if we now know that in 24 hours from now, we won't be allowed to fly this airplane, how can we possibly let the BA001 depart this morning? Where is it? It's just pushed back, called it back. And I was back under the gate. We were called back by a traffic control. We knew there was nothing wrong with the airplane because we were on it. We thought it was a bomb threat. They didn't give us any reason. They just said, come back. And I was the one that opened the door. And our TRM, as a turnaround manager, our dispatcher, as we called him in those days, came uh, came along the uh, walkway, the jetty. And she, I'll never forget it. She said, what are you guys doing back? And I said, I kind of hoped you'd be able to tell us that. Yeah. And then the realization dawned. We were grounded. So, But that wasn't the end of Concorde. We, mm-hmm. were, we had to make modifications to the airplane. And we only had to do one thing to break that hypothetical chain of events so that chain could never happen again but we did all of them we had no expense we spared britain yeah. and france worked together to get concord back into the air we put kevlar linings in the fuel tanks so that if we ever had another puncture we wouldn't get the massive fuel leaks they had in the accident we put uh, the the tire manufacturer redesigned the tire so that if it ever burst again it would break into tiny virtually harmless pieces we isolated the wiring around the undercarriage, which is what had caused the sparks and initiated the fire. And we did various other things. So we did five significant modifications to that airplane. So that could never, ever happen again. But not only that, we were going to go for another 10 years. We put new seats in. We put um, new toilets and bathrooms in. We put new sexy lighting in the cabin. This is an airplane that had a great future until 9-11 happened. And we actually had our last proving flight in the air. The plan was always to go halfway to New York and come back again uh, to test the the catering, the the check-in, the toilets, just check the whole operation worked before going live commercially. We'd done all the test flights. They were perfect. And that last proving flight was on 9-11. And the guys landed back from Blatt and learned of the atrocities in New York. New York being our prime destination. We physically lost a lot of our customers in that tragedy. We did go back into service in November, just two months later, and we were welcomed back to New York. It was the boost the city needed. And initially, our passenger loads were were good, but aviation was particularly badly hit, in particular our business traffic, every, every airline, Virgin, BA, all around the world, people just stopped flying. And Concorde was particularly badly hit. Senior business executives stopped flying on Concorde because their own businesses were losing money. They had to get yeah. back. Yeah. So um, we it was uncommercial. It was unviable to keep the airplane going any longer. And in two thousand and three, 
it was decided for economic reasons that Concord had to stop. Oh, it's a shame. And because uh, I've heard various whispers about they're going to do another one. So, uh, any the, anything in the rumours? Well, there's more than rumours, Paul. There's a company called Boom in the United States, and um, they've been on the go for quite a while. Uh, they are aiming to build a, a, an airplane along the lines of Concorde, uh, slightly slower and slightly smaller. And um, I wish them all the very best. They've been over and they've spent some time with us. They've flown a Concorde simulator and um, they've got plans to build Boom Overture. And they think they predict it'll fly somewhere around 2027, I think is the latest estimate. So it'd be absolutely fantastic. And um, I, I wish them well. I hope they manage to achieve it, of course. And when I talked to the air cadets, I did one just the other night, I said there may well be in this very room the next future supersonic airline pilots. So let's hope they can achieve it. That's a great message, isn't it? Straight away, you know, that, that'll get somebody excited and think, well, you've made, you've shown what's possible, you know. You've really been a complete self-starter the way you've yeah. done it. Yeah, and I, when I try and inspire those youngsters, I finish off by saying, I've had my go, it's your turn now. Mm, that's lovely. So what happened to... After the cold call came out of service, what happened to your flying? Yeah, so I sat at home for three months after we were grounded on August the 15th. And then once it became apparent that the aircraft, this was for the mods, when it was grounded for the mods, August 15th, 2000. And when it became apparent, it was going to be quite a while before we went back into service. Uh, we were at home on full pay and British Airways quite sensibly said, uh, we need you guys to go off and fly other airplanes. So... I volunteered, put my hand up and said, if I volunteered to become a captain on the Airbus, when would that training course start? The answer was along the lines of next Wednesday. So I was literally straight into uh, becoming an Airbus captain. Well, I'd never flown short haul apart from my time in down air, never flown an airplane without a flight engineer, never flown glass cockpit, and here I was going to be an Airbus captain. And then before I'd even finish the training, uh, before I'd even finish the simulator training, uh, I was invited to apply to become a training captain on the Airbus. So that's where my career took me. I had the opportunity to go back onto Concorde when it went back into service. And that was one of the toughest decisions of my life. Mm. By now, I'm an Airbus training captain. And the deal was we could all go back on Concorde. Yeah. But I decided not to go back. Apart from anything else, I would have had to take a significant pay cut to go back. And we'd already moved house on the back of the new salary. Um, and I'd been there, done that, had the T-shirt. And I stayed as an Airbus training captain for the next nine years and then eventually transferred to the Boeing 777 for the last oh, yeah. 12 years of my career. Yeah, and I was flying around the world, long haul, back to Barbados, where it all started from as a 777 training captain. Indeed, my very last flight ever was just over a year ago. I landed back on the 8th of December 2022 for my last ever flight commercially. I made... Um, one of the stewards taxiing in made a wonderful uh, public, you know, PA announcement to all the passengers, uh, which I overheard in the flight deck. My wife, my daughter, and my grandson were with me on that flight. And very luckily, there were three empty seats in first class both ways. So they rode first class with me. And um, the steward made, and his name was, made a wonderful PA. And I responded to that after I'd parked the aeroplane safely and turned the engines off for the very last time. And I thanked all the passengers, as always. And I thank my wife, Lynn, for all the support she'd given me over 46 years 
35 of them flying and for buying that first flying lesson. And my last ever words on a BA public address system were, and now I'm going to go home and cut the lawn. And 280 people laughed and I got off and went home. <laughs> and, um, and that was the end of a 46-year career in aviation, 35 years flying professionally, all very, very safely. We had a lot of fun and it was a real privilege to be a professional throughout that. It was great. That is amazing. So what, tell us about your work now because I gather there's a book and it sounds like yes. you do talks as well. So this is the chance to not be modest, John, and tell us what you're up to now. Yeah, well, that's kind of you, because that is one of my weak points. I always undersell. Makes sense now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, I, I do talks, and um, I did a big one under Concord back in uh, up in Manchester a little while ago, uh, 350 people for a gala dinner underneath the aeroplane. And that was wonderful to see their enthusiasm and passion for Concord. I've spoken about how I talk to the youngsters. And yeah, I've written a book. Um, I didn't intend to publish this. It was meant to be for future generations of my family. I called it um, From the Orphanage to the Edge of Space. And the clue's in the title. And as I alluded to earlier on, I started off in life with nothing. And I've got a wonderful nine-year-old grandson. Now I'm looking at a picture of him in my study as we talk. And he probably thinks I'm a bit of a silly old fool. We could try and play football in the back garden. My legs let me down and I can't score goals. And, and, and you know, one day he'll grow up and I'll be gone. And I wanted him to know that what Granddad did was actually quite cool. And so I started to write for him. Also, towards the end of my career, I was flying, well, the last few years of my career, I was flying with young co-pilots. I never mentioned Concord unless they did. They'd often know. There were only about... Six former Concorde pilots left in BA towards the end there. And they'd often know. So they'd ask me questions. And then I'd talk to them. And I'd come up with stories, not just about Concorde, but I'd come up with stories about, I don't know, go-karting with Princess Diana or being in Buckingham Palace with Sully Sullenberger or my time spent with a wonderful charity called Dream Flight. Uh, and I'd tell these stories. And so many times people said, John, that's amazing. You should write a book. So I did. I started putting something together in March 2020 when COVID kicked in. And I found myself sitting in the garden. It was a warm day in my, that March. And I started writing my stories down. And I, it took me three years. And, and I thought, there's a book in this. And I put it all together. And, uh, and what I did last Christmas, so December 22, I got four hard copies made. You can do it online, just a PDF document. And I got four hard copies made. It took me 10 minutes to design it. Design the cover, title, and a picture of Concord. And I gave my wife and my two daughters, Jenny and Natalie, a copy each for Christmas and made them open them simultaneously. They knew I'd be writing, but they had no idea I got that far. And their faces were a picture. And I started to look at self publishing after that. I thought, well, maybe other people would be interested in yes. this. And I looked at Amazon and self publishing. And I got to the bit where you've got to start formatting and doing margins, and that got a bit complicated for me. And I looked at a website called of a publisher called The History Press, and I saw you could submit, you could apply. And I filled out their submission form, basically telling them what the book was about. It said in the small print, if you don't hear from us within six months, we're not interested. Probably was a bit more polite than that. That's what it said. Literally four days later, they came back to me and said, John, we really like this. This girl called, lady called Amy emailed me. Really like this. 
Uh, we don't normally do memoirs, but we really like this. Can you send me the whole thing? So I sent them the whole thing uh, Sunday night. She said, I'm back in the office Monday morning. By 10 o'clock, and I'm not exaggerating, Amy emailed me and said, John, we absolutely love this. It's fantastic. The only problem is we've set all our production targets for the rest of this year. But I've called a management meeting this morning. We're going to change them. We really want this. And it's out there. It came out in November. And it's so far, um, I was scared about how people would receive it. That's me. Um, But so far, people have read it. And not just my friends have given five-star reviews. And I've had some really um, comforting feedback. But it is a great success. It's inspiring, moving, and at times amusing. So it's lots of funny stories. I love the sound of that. Well, I will definitely, I'm not a massive book reader. I go tend to sort of splurge read, but I will look yeah. at that one because that's, I just love the, the thought of, and also what you've overcome to get to that place, which, like you said, it was the pinnacle of your career flying. Yeah. But then you've just done so much other stuff as well. Yeah, thank you. And it's, they've changed the title slightly quite right. It's now called Life of a Concord Pilot from the Orphanage to the Edge of Space. Okay. I had a wonderful message from a 19-year-old um, through LinkedIn just a few days ago. And he bought my book, or a relative had bought it for him at the event I did at Manchester a few weeks ago. And he's read it. And he wrote and told me how inspiring it was. And he'd just been accepted by British Airways on their new pilot training course, one of only 100 people to get through out of 20,000 applicants. Wow. And he said he even read 10 pages of my book before going in for his final VA interview and added that last bit of inspiration that he needed. So that was wonderful. But um, yeah. That's the fantastic legacy, John, honestly. That's uh, to think that everything that you've just been talking about is all in print now, that people can read it. That's, that's just such a wonderful share as well. I'm so grateful to you for giving your time. It's been it's been amazing to hear about your journey and, uh, and all the different things you've done and the fact that you're going to carry on inspiring people. So what next then? Uh, I've, I've got another project in mind, but I've, I've uh, family life is is busy. Um, I still, uh, I love the English summer. I, I take care of the garden. I've, I just seem to fill every day. So mm. I was not looking forward to retirement, um, but every day seems to be full. There's always something to do. I still mono-ski, even though I can hardly walk. Um, I've got orthotics on both legs, so I have to take those off, stagger down to the boat, and I hope to get back skiing next summer. So, uh, um, yeah, I live life to the full. That's that. That's certainly for sure. Fantastic. John, absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed that. It was a lovely interview. And, uh, and the proper geek out for me as well, because, you know, having seen those, those uh, amazing beasts, and just hearing the roar of those engines, I just think it's phenomenal. And that point that the young, nobody who's young now will ever see it. I think that's yeah, phenomenal. It's remarkable. And and you know, I must congratulate you on the work you do, Paul. It's been a pleasure talking this morning. But it's very Thank common, you. of course, for people to be apprehensive about flying. Um, every day I meet somebody, and and I do my best to reassure them. And when they now, you know, here I've been flying for 35 years and, you know, to think that even while we've been having this conversation, there's 10,000 aeroplanes in the airliners in the sky above us every time, all, all the minute. It's, you know, it's it's just the safest way to travel. You and I know that. But it's mm-hmm. very common for people to be apprehensive about it. So well done on the work you do. 
Oh, there's a thank you. There's a group. Yeah, there's a group of us who feel the same. It's just, I I just think it's about giving people choices, you know. And, uh, but you know, I, I, on that note, actually, one of the things I often ask guests, and if I may, just if you could indulge me for a little bit more. Uh, if you anyone is listening now who is a nervous flyer and thinks, okay, you know, you've got a lot of experience, at, what would be your kind of your big your big message or messages to? to reassure them, maybe something you might have said in the flight deck in days gone Bible, just a general sort of bit of help. Well, people are apprehensive for various reasons. Uh, it's the being out of control thing, it's being in the cabin, not knowing what's going on, particularly for men. The most dangerous part of my job as an airline pilot is without doubt, and by a long shot, the drive to the airport, without doubt. Um, the, the training that pilots go through is phenomenal. I touched on the start of our conversation about the, the human training, training, mm -hmm. making sure pilots communicate, manage workload effectively. That's where all our training is focused. Aeroplanes nowadays in particular, very, very reliable. And, um, you know, they're, they're maintained to the highest standards. We have this no-blame culture that I've touched on. Uh, and, and without doubt, the drive to the airport is the most dangerous part of any airline pilot's job. If I've got time, I'll tell you a quick story. I met two years I met a couple of people years ago that I was introduced to who were really scared of flying. And I mean really scared. And they were both um business people, uh sensible people, and they 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 thought their fear was totally irrational. They tried everything, they'd done the courses that around at the time. A friend of mine had even taken him in to fly an airliner simulator. And then the last thing was, John, could you take them up in a small aeroplane? So I did. I took them individually in a two-seater, Piper Tomahawk, out of High Wycombe, uh, Booker, where I used to fly. And I took them around for an hour or so. And um, took the lady first and then her husband. And then afterwards said, what did you think of that? Do you enjoy that? And they lit up cigarettes. They were shaking like leaves. But it was the turning point for the lady. She died, her name was, and everything. And she phoned me up a week later to book her first flying lesson. And that was the turning point because she now knew how an aeroplane worked. She knew it wasn't just a mystery. It wasn't magic that these things stayed in the air. She understood the principles of flying, how the wings worked and, and this kind of thing. And she went on and got a private pilot's license and um, last I heard of her, she'd given up a big job and was getting a job into in aviation. It was a big turning point for her. So that's often the thing I often say to people, you know, talk about it, um, mm -hmm. and that, but even consider going in and having a flying lesson, even if it's just one in a small aeroplane, and then you might understand how an aeroplane works, mm -hmm. and, and that can help enormously. That's a great story. That, what... <laughs> What a terrible! We've got a few of those in our group actually that have gone, you know, gone from nervous flyer to to pilot. So it's lovely when you see that, and that's, a, that's a, such a great. And to give up the big business job and go and do that, it's brilliant. Yeah. It was incredible, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, John Tide, thank you very much. That's been an awesome interview, and I really enjoyed that. Love, uh, love hearing the stories. Love to hear more. Uh, so just give us one last plug for your book and where they can buy it. Paul, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I've been thoroughly enjoyed this morning. Life of a Concord Pilot, From the Orphanage to the Edge of Space by John Tyre is available through all good bookshops. 
or on Amazon online. Thank you for your support, Andrew. Oh, amazing. Thank you. That was great. A great pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Love Fly podcast. I hope you're finding it helpful with your fear of flying. Now, if you do need some extra tailored help, you can go to our website, lovefly.co.uk and click on the courses button. You'll find more help there, such as our 30-day program and our on-demand webinar. Thanks again. See you next time.